stop where you are. You don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing, all right. Come on. Get hold of him. Lock him up. All right, you fools. You've brought it on yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. You've driven me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and gaping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. There's a souvenir for you. And one for you. I'll show you who I am and what I am. <laughs> Look, he's all eaten away. Huh? How do you like that, eh? <laughs> Kenzie Lambert here, your host for Mac and the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten and the unforgettable. Hope you all had a wonderful Halloween. Uh, for Halloween, I wanted to pay tribute to my favorite of the classic Universal monsters, The Invisible Man. I will be discussing the five main films of the series, 1933's The Invisible Man, 1940's The Invisible Man Returns, and The Invisible Woman. 1942's The Invisible Agent, and 1944's The Invisible Man's Revenge. I will not be covering Evan Costello Meet the Invisible Man because I want to save it for an episode on the Evan Costello Monster Mashes. Special thanks to Todd Schwartz for lending me his copy of the Invisible Man Legacy Collection for this review. Without further ado, let's get into the movies. a tavern full of everymen. But that joyful simplicity is broken with the arrival of a stranger. The stranger wants a room and a fireplace and wants to not be disturbed. When sent to the room, the villagers come up with various theories over who the stranger is. Is he a criminal? Was he the victim of a bad accident? Days go by and the stranger is ill-tempered and ruining the room. He is demanded to leave, only for him to violently lash out at the barkeeper and his wife. The police are summoned, and it is revealed that the stranger is invisible. The invisible man escapes, all while causing chaos in the town. We find out that the invisible man is a scientist, Jack Griffin. Griffin's colleagues were worried about him and the experiments he was conducting in secrecy. They find out he was working with a rare Indian plant, monocane. Monocane can induce physical transparency 
but it has side effects such as mood swings and aggressive behavior. Griffin's colleagues, as well as Flora, his fiancée, are scared for him. Griffin meets up with one of his associates, Kemp. Kemp reluctantly assists Griffin as he terrorizes the countryside, throwing men off of cliffs and derailing trains. Griffin aspires to be the world's greatest criminal. I love this movie. The Invisible Man is one of my all-time favorites, and he's my favorite of the Universal Monsters. He's as complex as any one of the other creatures on the roster. Frankenstein's monster's sympathy in that he was rejected by his own creator as well as the world around him. Dracula has sex appeal. The Wolfman was sympathetic because he was cursed not by his own fault. The Invisible Man is driven by evil intentions due to the effects of the monocane, but his scene with Flora shows there's still humanity within him. The Invisible Man is one of the few monsters to have multiple distinctive appearances. The wardrobe of the Invisible Invisible Man in the opening, with the fake nose, the wrappings, the goggles, overcoat, and hat, is immediately recognizable. Then you have the smoking jacket, pajamas, and sunglasses look when he's hiding in Kemp's house. Despite being the Invisible Man, he has some memorable threads associated with him. English-born director James Whale was a key part of the success of the Universal Horror films. 1931's Frankenstein and 1932's The Old Dark House were films that brought in audiences, despite the Great Depression still affecting the populace. These films served as much-needed escape. The Invisible Man allowed Whale to exercise his dark humor, but with the cutting-edge effects of the time that weren't used in previous films. John P. Fulton is the man behind the special effects of The Invisible Man. Fulton would go on to be the go-to effects master for the rest of The Invisible Man films. His method was the precursor to green screen. He would have a black velvet backdrop with reins wrapped and the white bandages, but part of his face covered in black velvet. When filmed, the black velvet on reins would blend with the backdrop. This footage would be superimposed over other footage that would give the illusion of invisibility. One shot of Griffin unwrapping himself in a mirror has to be one of the most complicated shots of all time. Griffin's reflection in the mirror, the mirror itself, The background reflected in the mirror and Griffin in the foreground were all shot separately and had to be edited together. Getting that moment right and with all the elements involved is impressive just for the sheer ingenuity of Fulton. For all who say someone like Jack Pierce doesn't get the credit they deserve for makeup effects, you never hear about uh, the props for John Fulton's technical work. But I have to admit, the miniatures used in scenes like the car careening down a hill or a train derailment haven't aged well. Gilbert Curlin was the sound supervisor. I mention him because the opening scene features a sharp audio change in tone. The scene of the tavern has the sounds of laughter, piano music, and cheeriness. As soon as the stranger arrives, all of those elements are cut and we only hear the sound of the wind, which sounds like someone screaming. Using a simple sound effect to induce a sense of terror so quickly is nothing short of impressive. Jack Griffin marked the breakthrough performance by Claude Rains. Rains has a voice that commands the screen, making up for the lack of physical screen presence for the Griffin character. Rains would be a prominent supporting character in subsequent films like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Wolfman, and Casablanca. Gloria Stewart plays Flora, the love interest of Griffin. She'll likely forever be known for her turn as the older Rose in James Cameron's Titanic. Una O'Connor, the barmaiden, was a favorite of Whale. 
later appearing in Bride of Frankenstein. Seeing her freak out while her wounded husband tells her to shut up had me laughing in hysterics. It's like someone, you know, put Carol Kane in a time machine and sent her back for this movie. Same for E.E. E. Clive, who plays the constable. He had great comedic timing in his dialogue delivery. Keep an eye out for bit parts played by John Carradine as a snitch and Dwight Fry as a newspaper reporter. Ted Billings, a popular bit part character, has a blink and you'll miss it performance as a bar patron playing darts. I can't say much else about The Invisible Man. It's just one of the, my all-time favorites and it holds up surprisingly well compared to some of the other Universal Monster films. Great effects and the performance by Reigns make this a mess. The unseen grips the populace as a human being made invisible and insane by a potent drug. Preys on the citizenry, intent on vengeance. Prison walls cannot hold him. Scotland Yard cannot stop him. And while science works frantically, while a loved one waits and hopes, the invisible hands of a condemned murderer deal out death and destruction. Spectre, I don't understand. Jeffrey, he's invisible. Why can't I see him? Oh, he's here, is he? Just catch him, Inspector. He wants to kill me. Hey, you can't go upstairs. Oh, what can I do? Okay, Fred, darling. I can leave any moment I like. Take care of yourself, darling. I'll be all right. Helen, don't look at me like that. Jeffrey, he didn't kill Michael. Oh, didn't he? That shows how little you know, dear old Richard. Sir Jeffrey Radcliffe, the head of a local mining operation, mere hours away from being executed for the murder of his brother, Michael. It is a crime Radcliffe repeatedly claims he didn't commit. Despite the situation, Radcliffe is still well-liked by his workers for his sense of morality and for their safety. Soon, word gets out that he vanished into thin air, inexplicably escaping from prison. Radcliffe aims to find out who set him up. Meanwhile, the police are highly suspicious of Dr. Frank Griffin, the doctor working for Radcliffe. Frank is the brother of Jack Griffin, the original Invisible Man. The police believe that Griffin is responsible for Radcliffe escaping police custody. With Radcliffe on the loose, time is of the essence for the real killer to be revealed. The longer Radcliffe is exposed to the invisibility formula, the more likely he is to be incurably insane. Already, after a few days, Radcliffe is espousing the same diatribes as Jack. The Invisible Man Returns goes off on a different path than the previous film, which was primarily science fiction horror. Returns takes a science fiction spin on the Wrong Man film, 
akin to The Man Who Knew Too Much or North by Northwest. Radcliffe is charged for a crime he didn't commit and must go to great lengths to prove his innocence. The presence of Duocaine gives a race-against-the-clock tension that was lacking in The Invisible Man, but works great with Invisible Man Returns. What I appreciate about this film is that it follows the events of the previous Invisible Man. The police have a protocol in place when dealing with such a character, uh, notably the smoke dispensers that look like steampunk proton packs. The character of Detective Sampson is always alert and cautious. In a scene where Sampson visits Griffin, Sampson puffs his cigar throughout the room. I didn't think much of it, but soon realized he was checking to make sure Ratcliffe wasn't present. A small detail like that is clever on the part of the filmmakers. Joe May was an Austrian-born director that worked in Germany, Germany until 1933 when he fled to the U.S., while in Germany, he was responsible for giving Fritz Lang his first break as a screenwriter for a wedding in the eccentric club. His straight-laced approach to filmmaking and tone likely led to Invisible Man Returns lacking the dark humor of Whale for the previous film. Kurt Siadmak was a co-writer for The Invisible Man Returns. Similar to May, Siadmak fled Germany in the 1930s due to rising anti-Semitism. Siadmak was a prominent science fiction writer and worked frequently in German cinema, notably on Fritz Lang's Metropolis. He would be a regular contributor to horror films in that period for various studios. The Wolfman, Son of Dracula, The Invisible Agent, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, I Walked with a Zombie, House of Frankenstein, The Beast with Five Fingers. This guy was everywhere when it came to uh, classic horror. Much like with the previous film, John P. Fulton's effects are the star. In the seven years between the last film and this one, Fulton had time to improve his effects. But he's still using the basic black velvet in the background and on the actor for the invisibility sequences. Highlights include the scarecrow scene and the invisible guinea pigs. The noticeable improvement was with Radcliffe looking in a mirror and the eye holes in the wrapping on the front are showing the bandages on the back of the head instead of the room. It's another small detail, but it shows the dedication of Fulton. While not billed as the lead, Vincent Price plays the role of Radcliffe. The Invisible Man Returns was only his fourth film acting role, foreshadowing his lifelong association with, with horror films. Price only gets about one minute of face time in this film. The rest of the time it's either voiceover or he's covered it head to toe in bandages. Sir Cedric Hardwick gets top bill as Richard Cobb, the target of Radcliffe's suspicions over the death of Michael. Looking at his credentials, he was a big deal at the time for the, of the film's release, hence why he got top bill. He was the Ian McKellen of his day, a classically trained actor who dabbled in both big-budget fare and genre movies. We'll see Hardwick pop up again later in this episode. Alan Napier was a nice surprise, albeit he's almost unrecognizable. Napier plays Willie Spears, a stooge for Cobb. He's likely best known for playing Alfred in the Adam West Batman show. John Sutton plays Dr. Frank Griffin, the brother of Jack Griffin. There were a lot of clever touches done with this character. Sutton was an Indian-born actor, which coincides nicely with Monocane being a plant, Indian in origin. Griffin has much torment. He was the one that introduced the plant to Jack feeling partially responsible for the damage caused by the original Invisible Man. Nan Gray plays Helen, the love interest for Radcliffe. 
she serves the same role as Gloria Stewart. She's the one who can kind of keep the aggression and mentality of the Invisible Man temporarily in check. Cecil Kellaway is great as Detective Sampson, who I mentioned previously. If you can get past the fact that this isn't a horror film, you'll get a lot of enjoyment out of The Invisible Man Returns. Price is an icon, and it's interesting to go back this early in his career. Kellaway as Sampson is a joy to watch. Fulton's effects have aged well. It's a much lighter affair compared to the darkly humored predecessor. Something still showing? Professor Gibbs, who has been working on a device that could induce invisibility. Unfortunately, his financier, playboy Richard Russell, is out of money and has to cancel his support of Gibbs. Gibbs puts out a classified for volunteers. The volunteer that he ends up with is model Kitty Carroll. Carroll goes behind the machine and Gibbs activates it. It proves to be a big success with Carroll becoming invisible. Immediately, she goes after her former boss, a rude man named Growly. Growly treats his models like garbage, low wages, snooty clients, firing them for being sick, telling them to smile more. Carol scares Growly into changing his ways. Word of the machine's success spreads to the ears of a gang led by exiled Russian mobster Blackie. Blackie wants the machine to turn him invisible so he can finally leave Mexico and go back to Russia. Meanwhile, the professor is chasing Russell all over the place to prove his machine works. The Invisible Woman shows one of the stronger aspects of the Invisible Man series compared to other Universal monsters. There is greater genre diversity, as we'll see with The Invisible Agent. The Invisible Woman is a screwball comedy a la Bringing Up Baby with a nice female empowerment message, but not at the expense of all the male cast. The characters of Russell and Gibbs maintain their dignity and aren't torn to shreds for the mere sake of identitarian ideology. When Joker came out, my Twitter timeline frequently had women pining for a female Joker movie of a woman sick of the mistreatment on the part of society, 
by both men and women. Well, give this film a look. The sequence where Carol takes her former boss down several pegs is exactly what you're looking for. The Invisible Woman cuts itself off from the previous Invisible Man films, aside from the gender change of the main character. The means of becoming invisible change from serum to machine, eliminating the mental side effects of the monocane. Alcohol can elongate the duration of the invisibility or cause a relapse. Someone who was previously invisible will once again become invisible. While Radcliffe's stuck with the similar look of Griffin as the Invisible Man with the bandages and sunglasses, there are a few fleeting moments of the Invisible Woman in public that gives her a unique appearance. She has a dress and feminine overcoat, but is wearing a hat with a sunshade on the front that is as eye-catching and gives the same mystique as Griffin's first appearance in the original film. With a woman becoming invisible and thus disrobing, it hit me that there was a voyeuristic element to these films. Technically, you're seeing the men and women that are invisible in a state of full undress, but because none of it was on screen, the Hayes office couldn't do anything about it. I can't say I'm familiar with other films from director A. Edward Sutherland, but his career dates back to the silent era. Fulton's effects still hold up and add to the film's comedy. According to online sources, Kurt Siamak and Joe May of The Invisible Man Returns contributed the story that would be adapted to the film for The Invisible Woman. Virginia Bruce is Kitty Carroll. She has the credit for introducing the Cole Porter hit, I've Got You Under My Skin, to audiences in the film Born to Dance. John Barrymore is Professor Gibbs. John was the grandfather to actress Drew Barrymore. He is best known for playing the total role in the 1920 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. John Howard was Richard Russell. He was the dashing Levy man, common of the era. In supporting roles, you have the likes of Margaret Hamilton and Shemp Howard. Credit should be given to actor Charlie Ruggles for his turn as the butler George. The Invisible Woman is a nice change of pace. The alteration in genre and tone make this a fun watch. Two charming leads in Bruce and Russell, plus the antics of Barrymore, Ruggles, Hamilton, and Howard, are a solid supporting cast. I recommend it. There's an enemy spy at large, an invisible man. It's, it's amazing. You will be of great help to us. Who is this terrifying Phantom Commando? What is his amazing mission? See the Invisible Agent, suggested by H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. Starring Ilona Massey and John Hall, with Peter Lorre, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bromberg, Albert Bosserman, in the most amazing story of our times. Ah!
Texas agents have located Frank Griffin, not to be confused with the Frank Griffin from The Invisible Man Returns. Frank is the grandson of the original Invisible Man, Jack Griffin. The agents are led by Lieutenant General Stauffer, and they want the invisibility formula they know is in his possession. Frank manages to escape with the formula and seek help from the U.S. authorities. The U.S. want to use the formula for their own purposes, and Frank refuses. In the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, Frank changes his mind and agrees to use his grandfather's formula against the Axis powers. But there's only one condition. Frank must be the one to be injected with the formula and to be sent on the mission. What is the mission? Frank must make contact with Arnold Schmidt, a coffin maker, and Maria, a German agent helping the Allies. But Frank also overhears of a plan attack on New York City. Tension builds as Frank must complete the mission not only to save New York City, but his own sanity. With the return of the formula comes the return of the side effects of the invisibility drug. Much like other productions of the time, be it Fritz Lang's Manhunt or Casablanca, The Invisible Agent is a pro-American propaganda film meant to boost the morale of the home front and support the Allied war effort. It plays like a World War II comic book or pulp literature. Think of The Rocketeer or Captain America the First Avenger. In fact, this is what First Avengers should have been, Allied imagery going up against swastikas. I was also reminded of the Italian job with Michael Caine. Uh, that film was what would be called a Eurosceptic film that poked fun at the common market in the EU, particularly with the depiction of the Italian police. That's the same mindset that was clear, pun not intended, in The Invisible Agent and with the presentation of German soldiers. The German soldiers were made to look like buffoons and idiots, an army of Sergeant Schultzes from Hogan's Heroes. Edwin L. Morin directed the film. Uh, the only other credit of his I recognize was the 1938 Christmas Carol, starring Reginald Owen as Scrooge. Kurt Siodmak wrote the film, and it shows. It was a year after The Wolfman, which had heavy sociopolitical undertones itself, but The Invisible Agent allows Siodmak to throw the subtleties aside and just outright kick Nazi ass. Speaking of the Wolfman, the theme for the Wolfman is used during the climactic fight between Nazis and Japanese spies. John Fulton improves upon his effects. The bathtub and cold cream scenes show Fulton upgraded from black velvet to black makeup. This allowed for Griffin's feet to be visible with soap foam and for the cold cream to show facial features. The effects are nothing short of impressive. John Hall has the charm as Frank Griffin, especially in the scenes shared with Yona Massey. I immediately thought of Bill Campbell as Cliff Secord from Rocketeer or Chris Evans as Steve Rogers. Yona Massey has a strong screen presence as Maria, an allied agent, and she sparks with Hall. Sir Cedric Harwick plays Stoffer with a menace. He's a genuinely scary guy and conniving. He's not above lying to get what he needs and even liquidate his own men. Peter Lorre as Akito will raise eyebrows, considering you have a German actor playing a Japanese officer. Sadly, this would be common for Lorre, uh, notably as Detective Moto. I highly recommend The Invisible Agent. If you're a fan of movies like The First Avenger, The Rocketeer, or even Sky Captain The World of Tomorrow... The Invisible Agent is the genuine article that all those other films inspired to be. To scheme the invisible scheme 
Griffin was a co-partner in a diamond mine located in Africa. He was institutionalized after committing murders. He manages to escape Cape Town and meet back up with his partners, the Herrick Estate. He demands to be compensated for his share. Unfortunately, the Herrick family blew Griffin's share on bad investments. Under the threat of blackmail, the Herricks incapacitate Robert and steal Robert's evidence of the money owed to him. The Herricks have Robert removed from their property. Robert wakes up and nearly drowns until he's rescued by a local shoemaker, Herbert. Herbert helps him, and Robert uses Herbert as a witness to prove Robert was in the right to confront the Herricks. The wealth of the Herricks brings in the local police chief and Herbert backpedals. While leaving the area in exile, Robert comes across a scientist by the name of Drury. Drury offers him a chance for fame by being a human test subject for his invisibility formula. Drury has already tested the formula on his dog, and it was a success. Turns out the drug works on humans, and Robert leaves to take his revenge on the Herrick family. The Invisible Man's revenge is definitely the weakest of the series. A lot of it has to do with not many of the characters being likable. Robert Griffin, the Herricks, and Drury are all characters I, I just couldn't care for and didn't like. I felt sorry for Julie and Herbert since they seemed to be the only characters with conscience. They were doing their best to do the right thing in spite of the bad circumstances. The film alters the logic of invisibility. The means of removing the invisibility effect is a blood transfusion, but it proves to be fatal for the person having their blood taken. Plus, the method is only temporary and requires frequent blood transfusions, adding a vampiristic element to the character that feels out of place. That's not to say the film is completely unwatchable. Comedian Leon Errol stands out among the cast and is the center of a hilarious scene regarding a game of darts. Director Ford Beebe makes a straightforward film that aims more towards The Invisible Man Returns as opposed to the original Invisible Man. Fulton's effects still look good. John Hall returns, but in the role of Robert Griffin, 
and comes off as unsympathetic and unworthy of support. His motive is lecherous compared to the likes of Radcliffe or Frank Griffin from The Invisible Agent. John Carradine plays Drury with the same fervor as he did plenty of other times when he was a mad scientist. The unearthly immediately comes to mind. Evelyn Ankers didn't have a lot to do. She's treated as an object of Robert's affection, sometimes coming off as just being a trophy. Keep an eye out for Ted Billings as one of the tavern patrons. He was the dart player in the original Invisible Man. I have the least to say about this film because it stands as the weakest entry. You can tell Universal was done with the character, saving him for the inevitable romp with Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. As mentioned previously, I'll discuss that film in the future. If you're curious, you can find the clip of the Dark Challenge on YouTube with Leon Errol. It's the only entertaining element of the film. And that finishes this episode of Mac and the Movies. Thanks for listening. November means Turkey Month, and that means bad movies galore. For November 11th, or at least that week, I'll be defending Uwe Boll. Then on Thanksgiving Thursday, I'll drop my Turkey Day episode of 10 Movies, Uh, from the IMDb lowest-rated movies list. God, this is going to hurt. If you like this program and want to see it grow, a one-time donation to my PayPal will be greatly appreciated. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions can be sent to my Gmail account. All of this will be in the description below. Until then, this is Mackenzie Lambert from Megan the Movies. Take care, folks. (laughs) 